Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. My name is Tuvia Kopstein, and I am thrilled to bring you David Magerman of Philadelphia. David was at the forefront of the rise of the hedge fund. He was an instrumental player in Renaissance technologies as it rose to prominence. Now he does venture capital with differential ventures. David is at the forefront of the Jewish philanthropic world. He has a lot of insights into philanthropy. And a great story to tell about his own Jewish transformation. We know you'll love this episode with David. And now some station identification. Our tribe is powered by the Podcast Fellowship, which is an international nonprofit Jewish outreach that does, that reaches young Jewish adults wherever they are in the world, gives them access to their heritage by connecting them with local mentors, no matter where they are, as I said before. And you can check out what we do at podcastfellowship.org. And before we get started with our guest, David, a few warm words about our sponsor. Our sponsor is a man with a special connection to the podcast fellowship because he is what he is today, the passionate Jew that he is today, because of his listening deeply to some of the core podcasts that we offer on the podcast fellowship. He's expressing his gratitude for what these classes have done for him through his sponsorship. And his name is Andrew Elliott Stern of the Andrew Elliott Group. If you're a tech startup or you're a tech, you're a tech CEO, you're not a tech startup, but you're the CEO of a tech startup, then you owe it to yourself to join the hundreds of CEOs that Andrew has worked with to help them gain control over the management of their business. If you have venture funding and you've ever questioned if you're approaching your management correctly, you can visit Andrew's website to grab a free leadership assessment. It's andrewelliotstern.com. That's Elliot spelled with two L's and one T. So andrewelliotstern.com slash assessment, or you'll find that in the show notes. Without further ado, our Tribe the Podcast with David Magerman. Okay, and we are here with David Magerman. How are you, David? Doing great, thank God. How are you? Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Thank God. Okay, David, so let's start from the beginning. Tell, tell us your stories. Go back as far as you want. <laughs> And, uh, and tell us, give us how you got to where you are today, and let's hear it. Uh, how long do you have? <laughs> we have, for the introduction section, we have, let's say, 20 minutes. Okay, wow. Okay, um, <laughs> so going back to the beginning. I mean, so I, I was actually brought up in a uh, um, secular Jewish home, um, a lot, uh, very much like, you know, two or three times a year Jew, uh, Seder, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, that sort of thing, um, Bar Mitzvah, and... and a little confirmation class, but basically, uh, you know, a secular Jew. Really, the, my religion from that I got from my parents, um, aside from some Jewish values, was education and, and achievement. You know, I was I was kind of like you know raised. I was came from a lower middle class family. Uh, uh, my father was a taxi driver. My mother was a secretary. And uh, you know, the goal was to do better to to get myself out of that situation. And my parents taught me that the key to success in America was education. And so I worked really hard at school. Thank God I had a good aptitude for certain areas. Um, got involved in computers when I was in, uh, actually in elementary school, uh, back in the, uh, late seventies, if you believe it. Um, and, uh, I uh, started programming when I was in, in middle school and high school. 
and uh, went ended up getting going to Penn, and I got to Penn, and just all I wanted to do was learn and achieve and get good grades and get accolades. I applied for scholarships and I applied for, you know, did, did competitions and I got some nice internships while I was there. And, you know, the goal was really to like, again, achieve academic success and eventually economic, um, economic success. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I went, so I, I got a computer science and math degree at, at Penn and ended up going to grad school, um, went to Stanford for grad school and um, uh, got a PhD uh, in kind of record time, got like three and a half years in and out. Really the goal, again, the goal was to just learn, succeed. But like my, my, my God, my Torah was, uh, was achievement and education. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, trying to learn, um, learn and become useful and successful in a material sense. And uh, I ended up, um, I was in academia for a while, didn't get the, the jobs that I wanted and ended up getting brought into um, what then was like a, n- a non-existent profession, which was um, working at a quantitative hedge fund. This is back in the mid nineties when no one really knew what a hedge fund was, much less a quantitative hedge fund. A uh, famous mathematician named uh, Jim Simons, um, he started this fund building mathematical models to predict price movements of tradable instruments um, using purely using purely mathematics, just looking off of data, not and not analyzing fundamentals in any way, just looking at data, crunching numbers, figuring out patterns, and then coming up with models that out of sample produced profitable trades. And um, he did this very successfully in some markets and he was looking to do it in equities. And um, I joined the company when they were kind of struggling to get their equity trading off the ground. And I joined there with a couple of other colleagues who I'd worked with um, in my in my research work when I did my PhD, and uh, we ended up building a very uh, competent to successful equities trading system that made really nice returns and ended up managing uh, tens of billions at its peak, I think maybe um, over $100 billion um, of of assets um, trading in financial markets around the world um, and doing it so profitably. Um, Pardon my ignorance. When you say he wanted to get, he was successful in many markets, he wanted to get into equities. Can you explain the difference yeah, so he, he was successful. His models worked well in commodities, trading mm-hmm. like, you know, corn futures and oil futures okay. and uh, metals like, you know, gold futures and mm-hmm. silver and, 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 and so on. And uh, also in trading bonds. So like, you know, uh, uh, U.S. bonds and, you know, German bonds and uh, different bonds from different countries. And um, the, uh, the those instruments were very different. He also traded currencies. That was a big a big market for for the for the fund, but those instruments there's small number of instruments and they have very big markets for themselves. Whereas stocks, there's a lot of different stocks, you know, thousands of different stocks, and they're they're all a lot. Each each stock is smaller, and there are you know they they make up uh, you know markets in aggregate, but they're each each instrument is kind of small in size. And so the way that that he was doing the modeling back in the early days didn't lend itself to trading large numbers of small instruments the way it, it traded a small number of large instruments. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were able to trade equity index futures. So like S&P 500 futures um, and, and index futures around, around the world, but they couldn't, he, he, the models didn't work well on individual stocks. And so there, but you imagine the equity markets, you know, are huge, um, you know, larger even than in aggregate than uh, the, the markets they were trading in. And the opportunity to make money there was much larger, potentially, if they could figure out how to crack that nut. 
And so when we uh, when when I joined the company, the the company was struggling doing this, and we figured out kind of how to ma- how to write the ship and make it make it work. And we ended up, uh, you know, we started being like five uh, percent of the company's capital and about five, minus five percent of their profits because we were losing money. Um, and uh, that was kind of frustrating to people who were working on the profitable parts of the company. We were getting paid a lot of money to fail. Um, and eventually, we turned it around, and by maybe three or four years later, we were uh, probably two thirds of the company's profits. Um, so we, we really, um, and then eventually it became like 90% of the, the company's profits, um, after a while. So it ve- became very successful. I was paid very well, um, for doing this work and I was, uh, worked very hard. Um, I was single through my twenties and, um, you know, didn't date much cause I was a nerd and, um, I, I didn't, didn't have a, I was living in Eastern Long Island, not exactly a hotbed of Jewish life. Um, not that I was necessarily like so focused on dating Jews at the time, but I wasn't that focused on dating at all. And I really was just like working. And then um, eventually I got interested in thought maybe I should get married at some point. And I joined date, J date, which back in like the late nineties was a very big, very much a novelty um, and um, met my wife. Thank God. Uh, um, wonderful, wonderful woman from Manhattan and um, success of early success of J date. And uh, now we have four kids. Thank God. But um, we, it was a, uh, it definitely was like a, a process. And um, I got to this point, like once I had my, my first two kids, I had two boys and the oldest one was getting to like the age that he'd start like, you know, asking me questions about life. Um, you know, kind of the, the four-year-old's version of what's the meaning of life. And I had gotten to this like peak level of success where I reached kind of like, I was, I mean, very, very successful financially, very successful professionally, very much respected and kind of like at the top of my game. And, you know, my boss, my bosses were now the co-CEOs of the company and they were not so old. So I was kind of like where I was going to be for a while. And I kind of like got to, you get to like a plat, a professional plateau. And I looked around and I wasn't satisfied. I wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilled. And I had everything far more than I ever thought I'd have from a material perspective. And I had a, a beautiful wife, wonderful kids, beautiful house, um, you know, just a very comfortable existence. But I was almost in despair. Like, I didn't really know where to go from there. And around the time, my um, I have a cousin who lives in Israel, a religious Jew, and he his oldest son was having his bar mitzvah, and we got invited to, to go spend, like, it was, it was during the nine days, so there was, like, a restriction on having parties. So it was going to be, like, a two-week trip between when his bar mitzvah actually was and the party, and he was planning all these tours and my wife and I said, "Lay, let's let's uh, let's go to Israel for for two weeks, and we'll have a vacation. It'll be nice, you know. We'll, we'll do some touring with the kids and whatever. We'll meet, meet some family. hadn't seen hadn't met that that side of the family so much. And when I got to Israel, so I was with this um, family in Harnof, very religious community. And my cousin was like the center of the social community. He was a wealthy wealthy member of the community and had a big house or a big apartment and had all his friends over. His kids had their friends over. They had like yeshiva students sleeping in their house for, for the week. And um, just every day was like a big party, lunch and dinner with like, you know, 30, 40 people sitting in their, in their big, big spread out uh, dining room. Um, and I was, was there with my, with my wife and with my kids. And I felt so drawn in by the life my cousin was leading. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I felt so alienated from it in that um, I would be sitting at a table talking and like 11 year olds knew more about Torah than I did. 
and they'd be speaking intelligently about conversation. And I couldn't even contribute to the conversation. And like, I'll be honest, I wasn't used to being the dumbest guy in the room. And no matter who was in the room, I was like the dumbest guy in the room when it came to what they were talking about. And I thought like, this is Torah. This is like, I'm a Jew. This is my tradition. And I don't know anything about it. And I, and I also saw the beauty of how this community was living and the, the, the way the families interacted. And I just felt very like locked out of something that seemed beautiful. And I was, I, I, I guess I looked kind of sad. And one of my cousin's friends pulled me aside and said, you look like a little upset. And I explained him what I was feeling. And he said, you know, I was there too. He was a Balchuva himself and he'd be coming to Judaism later in life. And he said, I got, I, I, I didn't give you a recommendation. There's this organization called Partners in Torah. And when you get back to America, give them a call, you know, that you can sign. They didn't, they didn't, I, think they had, I don't think they had a web, website yet. You had to actually call up on a phone and talk to a person. But they said, sign up, sign up for this program, and they'll pair you up with someone that matches your personality and your what you want to learn. And you'll learn once a week over the phone for an hour every week, and you just learn whatever you want to learn. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. So when I got back to America, I did two things. I called up Partners in Torah, got paired up with this uh, – Really great guy, a lawyer from Manhattan that I ended up learning with for seven years. Um, and um, I found, like, I dusted off my old tefillin from my bar mitzvah, mm. you know, which which probably were empty black boxes because my parents probably paid, like, $15 for them back back in the day. But, like, I didn't know any better. And I, you know, and I, and I took my, my, my tefillin, I took my kind of mold, mild, mildewy uh, uh, talus, got it cleaned, and then went to the local conservative synagogue in the morning, and I said, let me start going to the, the minion and praying in the minion. Didn't know what I was doing. Just figured I'd show up. So, of course, the first thing they said was who died. Because someone like a 30-something-year-old guy showing up to a minion for the first time, you know, is usually saying Kaddish for someone. I said, no, no, I'm just looking to, like, learn a little bit about my, my tradition. And started going to this minion and learning how to pray. And, you know, the love, lovely people there, they, like, showed, showed me what to do and gave me some lessons. They, they We did shots afterwards because that's what they did. All these retirees, they would do, like, a shot of a shot of, uh, of scotch or something. Got, got me a little sick for a while, but I eventually stopped doing that. Um, and it was a, but it, but it was it was really nice. I started like getting involved with these performance rituals, um, but but I also started learning, and I I started learning uh, with this Chabrusa, this learning partner, um, an hour a week over the phone, and we started doing a little bit of parsha, you know, the weekly parsha, and we started doing a little bit of Gemara, and we did we did some you know, just different, different topics. And I, you know, I'm a computer scientist by training, very big, a systems guy. And I wasn't really feeling like the continuity when I was learning. I said, like, I told the guy, I want to, I want to learn the system. Like, what are the laws that we're doing here? Like, what is this all about? And he said, well, there's this book called the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, which is just like a list of all the mitzvahs that were at and how they were practiced in, practiced in like Lithuania in the middle of the, like the 18th or whatever, 19th century, whenever it was. And I said, yeah, I want to learn that. And so I'm sure he was like, you know, oh, my God, he's going to make me go through this really boring book, just reading mitzvah after mitzvah. But he, he, he kept a straight face. And, OK, that's what you want to do. And so from that, that forward, that time forward, we started going from the very beginning and just learning law by law. What were the rules of the, each, each, each mitzvah and how do you do them? And and um, the, the interest, interesting thing he, did, thing he did was that every holiday that came up, we would jump to the place in the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, which would talk about the laws of that holiday. And so I would learn all the things I'm not doing that the Torah law says you should do. And then um, when, so I went through that for a whole year and we, we jumped around the holidays. And then, and then the second year through, like I, I kept learning with him and the second year through, 
um, I, as we got to, I remembered the law. I got a good memory. I remembered the laws as we were learning them again for the holidays. I said, let me try like doing some of these things. Let me like do some of these, some of these laws, you know, just for the holidays, just see like, I'll, you know, Purim, I'll do like, I'll, I'll do, do give, give, give a gift out or something, or I'll, you know, uh, hear, hear, uh, hear the McGill read. And, um, then, and I started doing that and went through another year. And then the third year through, I said, you know, let me like think, let's pretend that I'm an Orthodox Jew. Let's pretend these are the laws that I think apply to me. And let me start actually doing them in my daily life. Not like from a place of like believing in Hashem and believing in, in the, in the commandments of Torah, just as an experiment, a social experiment. Let me just try this out and see what it feels like to do these things. I started putting on tefillin in the morning on a regular basis. Sort of like testing a mathematical model. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Is, okay. exactly. Yeah, do an experiment. <laughs> and the amazing thing was that over the course of that year, I started to see the synergy of the, the performance of these mitzvahs in my life, creating structure for me and, and just giving me like a sense of purpose, a, a, a sense of commandedness. And it was just something that the, the synergy of it in my life just started fitting in. Mm-hmm. And I also, we started switching from this, the, the Shulchan Aruch to, uh, to uh, going back to Gemara. We were studying like some uh, uh, Pesachim and, you know, the laws of Pesach, which obviously, if you don't know the, the, the Gemara, um, doesn't cover a topic. Like, you know, you start talking about Pesach and all of a sudden you're talking about Shabbos, or you're talking about, you know, uh, um, marriage or Kedushin, like it, it, it jumps around inside the Gemara. And so I started learning like a far, far flung, um, laws about, about Judaism. And the amazing thing was that, you know, this is the way God works. I would be studying Gemara during the day and like one day that week. And that week, something would happen in my life where the Gemara that I learned would have like real material relevance. Mm-hmm. Something about it would like, would like click in like that. I was making a decision in my life you know, in business or in my, in my home life, whatever, where the thing I learned that week would have happened to be relevant to my decision making. And it it dawned on me, oh my God, this stuff actually matters today. Like this is actually not just ancient wisdom, like, you know, ancient Chinese secrets um, from, from, uh, you know, from commercials, but like, this is actually like a real relevant body of knowledge that applies to me in my modern life today and that epiphany kind of like push, pushed me from being an experimenter to, you know, starting to buy into the commandedness of Torah, the relevance of Torah, and this idea that we were, we as Jews were given the guidebook to life. Like we, it's like, you know, if you, if you had a, a, a printer and the printer stopped working, you wouldn't just start taking it apart and like, you know, uh, you know, uh, plugging things in together. You'd go to the manual and you'd read the manual and say, okay, how do I fix this? The Torah is the manual for, for, for life, life uh, in this world and in the world to come. But it's like this, it's like this instruction manual. And we were blessed with being given it and given all these rules to follow and all these guide, you know, guide, guidelines to, to, to guide our life. And it dawned on me that like, I'm like ignoring this advantage by not doing this. And, um, it's, it's so over time, it like gradually became this thing that I could now pass on to my children. And that's an important piece of, of the, the Shema that we say every day, the, the commandedness of the Torah is that we're supposed to teach our children the Torah and have them do it. And it, it became clear to me that the thing that started this whole journey for me, this feeling that the, the life that I was living, you know, this idea that the only thing I had to pass on to my children was whoever dies with the most toys wins. Like that wasn't like a message I wanted to pass to my kids. 
And through this journey, I'd gotten to the point where I now understood, no, the thing that I can pass on to my children is this commandedness to follow this uh, guidebook that um, will help will help me and my kids and, and, and God willing, their, their kids lead a meaningful life. So that's kind of the, the journey that I went on. And I had some professional trials and tribulations along the way as well. But kind of like that, to me, the, the, net, the, the last 10 years of my life have really been kind of a focus on, you know, living, living a Torah-driven life, living a, a commanded life, and learning more about what that commandedness means in the details, fleshing out the knowledge I didn't gain by having not been, not, not been a, a, an observant Jew from childhood, and just kind of filling in the gaps, and also using the background that I have, both in computer science and finance and the money I've made, to have a positive impact on the Jewish world. Wow. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. That was that was very good and very timely. Good. You got it in 20 minutes. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued by the one thing you mentioned. When you decided to start start observing as an experimental, was that just because you encountered you you and through your learning you encountered a system uh, you you saw there's a system called Judaism you were already learning Kitzur Shulchan Aruch and you're and and you said well if it's a system what does it feel like to be part of that system you just wanted yeah. to feel it okay yeah it's interesting yeah but it wasn't coming from according to what you said it wasn't a it wasn't starting from the big picture there's a feel there there is a God and God hasn't expects something from us but it was from it was these are the details let's see what it feels like to live the details and then God kind of God's in the details. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, fascinating. Okay, now, can you, at the very beginning, you mentioned how your parents gave over not only the idea that an education is the way to succeed and to do better than they did uh, economically, but also they gave you some Jewish values. What mm-hmm. were those What were those Jewish values? I mean, uh, I mean, aside from knowing that they had grown up uh, in Jewish homes and, you know, we, we observed the holidays and acknowledged, uh, you know, we, we acknowledged God a couple times a year anyway. Um, but it was, you know, do, doing things for other people. Um, I mean, you know, uh, advocating for the weak and, and uh, doing what, what's right in the world. Uh, my, my father, unfortunately, passed away when I was in college, um, mm-hmm. my, my freshman year. And uh, going to his funeral, I had no idea how beloved he was in his world and how many people came out uh, for his funeral. And, and I didn't really keep, you know, uh, observe a proper shiva, but I, I was home from college for a few days and talked to people and found out like what a good person he was, mm-hmm. how much he cared for his fellow man. And, you know, it was, even though we weren't, we had, didn't have a lot of money, he was actually charitable to people around him who had less than, than we did and, and tried to take care of people and be, be um, a good person to his coworkers and people who, you know, worked for him and I um, mean, people who drove for him and, and things like that. But it was really very much, you know, I think it was really just more like what people call, you know, Judeo Christian values, just like being, you know, caring about other people, um, and uh, trying to be viewed as a good person and doing good things when you have the opportunity to do them, but nothing, nothing specifically performative on like a you know mitzvah level of like you know ri- ritualistic mitzvah or even like you know kashrut or any of the the kind of um, performative mitzvahs that are part of uh, observant Jewish life. It was more just kind of like the general idea that you want to be a positive uh, presence in a community and not a negative one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now. Can you tell us, you, you said that in, in your learning, you, you started to realize that, that what you're learning, which seemed to be esoteric and not relevant to today, all of a sudden was influencing your decision making. Can you give us an example in, in terms of your professional, how, how, the, how the Talmudic study uh, 
had it has effect on your professional decisions and your, your work. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I was surprised to find out how much of the Talmud, how much of the, the, the codification of the oral traditions of, of the Torah, um, are business law. So much of it is about how people can be responsibly carrying out their business obligations between man and man. Like there's, there's, there's also a lot of talking about, you know, the things of God and like, you know, you know, rituals and whatnot, but so much of it, probably more than, more than half of it is business law. And it governs things like when you enter into a contract, what you're obligated to. And so like, just as an example, I was studying a, a Gamar. I wish I could remember where it was. Maybe you, you, you'll know, but it was talking about if you, if you enter into a contract to sell something, um, but you haven't consummated the contract and then something happens that like damages the value of the thing that you are selling, mm-hmm. then what is your obligation to inform the buyer of that and to remediate it and change the value versus just, you know, you, you have the agreement, take the money and give the, give the object. And at this, around that time, I was, I was in the process of selling my house. We were moving from Long Island to Philadelphia and I had gone to, gone to contract with someone, um, to sell my house. Mm-hmm. And then we discovered we had, um, a mold problem in the basement. Yeah. There was, there was like a leaky something or other. And it happened before we thought we fixed it. It came back and they'd already done their inspections and we got someone to come and re- repair it, fix it, remediate it, whatever. But the question was, what obligation did I have to inform the buyer that this thing had happened? Which you know, maybe they should do another inspection. Maybe they, you know, what the, the but the diligence process, you know, period had ended, and they were committed to the to the, to the purchase. And I honestly, I don't even remember what the what the outcome of it was. I think I was supposed to tell them, and I did, and they they checked the work that we did, and it was all fine, and they they bought the house anyway. But. Again, it was that, that week that I was learning a Gamara that talked about this very problem. Wow. And I thought it was pretty, uh, you know, coincidental and you know, amazing, uh, uh, um, you know, how, uh, how God works that that was the, the thing that I learned. But there's also like things about like, you know, your, your obligation to pay your employees on time and to not have like, not let a day go by where if you owe, you owe someone that works for you money that you have an obligation to pay them, you know, within a specified amount of time. And I, and I had a housekeeper that worked for me and, mm-hmm. and, you know, like just, Knowing that these are obligations I have that I can't like, you know, if I don't have the, 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 the cash to pay them and I pay them in cash, whatever that, oh, don't, don't tell the IRS, um, that, that, um, I, I, I pay all my, my staff on, on payroll, fully, fully, uh, taxes and all that. Um, but at the time, maybe not as much, but, uh, you know, like, like th- that I had to like make sure that I gave them the reason, you know, if they, if they were supposed to be paid on a certain day, I had to give them the money that day and I had an obligation to it. And there were, you know, punishments or penalties if I didn't do it but like you know understanding that that like I wouldn't have thought that was a part of Torah mm-hmm. like that that strikes me as like just like the social contract and you know and 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 also you know you hear stories about like um religious people who don't exactly follow the most you know upstanding uh practices in in the business world and that's as bad as eating trace like mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, 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 I, I'm not, I'm not holding myself on, on, on a high pedestal. I, you know, I, I, I commit errors and, you know, atone for them all that. I'm not like a perfect Jew, but like understanding that if someone daven three times a day, puts on to fill in and keeps kosher and that, but does, you know, behaves badly in business, those people are violating Torah just as much as someone who eats shrimp. You know, it's like, a, and, and, and like understanding that, that the law was not just this ritualistic thing. It's actually an all encompassing system that governs behavior between man and man as well as between man and god and that was like a a really valuable piece of my education okay yeah sure so i'm hearing that that 
I hear that the, that this is helping you in your in your inner in your interactions with the people that let's say your staff your 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 when you're selling your home. Did it in terms of what you do uniquely, which is the your work in the hedge fund and your work now in, in venture capital? Is there is there a way that that the learning and the observance came together to help you understand better those those areas or to to have new insights in 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 how to deal? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it, it gave me a very negative impression of what I did for a living. Um, in that what I was doing was, um, you know, the, the, the kind of market neutral quantitative hedge fund I work for is kind of a leech on the financial markets and on society that it, it, it doesn't, it, being a market neutral investor means you're not, you're not, you're not investing positively anything, anything you, if you buy something, you also short something so that net you're, you have no, no long exposure to the markets and, we're making profits. So we're basically not contributing capital to the markets in net, but we're pulling money out. And in the long run, that's not a sustainable approach. Like in the long run, the the more successful we are, the more we damage the system we're leeching off of in the the limit, we destroy what it is that makes us money. And there were, we had a lot of really smart people working at our company um, and people a lot smarter than I am. And we were all single-mindedly working towards creating this massive leech <laughs> that would suck the lifeblood out of capitalism. And, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people had different perspectives on it, but, but, you know, like, like the Torah, the Torah taught me that um, we're, we're kind of all in this together, that we're, we're a society and that as, as an actor who was kind of making money for myself and my small collection of, of team members that we were working, you know, the, my company and the investors in my company, like I had to be thinking more broadly about society, other other people, the you know, the uh, the rest of the Jewish people, and and the, and the world, and you know all all of the world, and that what I was doing was not really consistent with those values, um, and that I should be contributing to society in a more constructive way. You know, God gave me certain abilities, certain 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 skills, and analytical abilities, and so on, and I was using them in a very selfish and even destructive way. And that that was not really consistent with my values. And I, and I struggled with that for a number of years. Um, and I continued to work for the company. And I, I made a lot of money. And I gave a lot of tzedakah. And I would speak to some rabbis about, like, you know, if I feel this way about this work, and how, you know, and, but I'm making this money and giving it away, and how, how can I balance it? And they basically said to me that as long as what I'm doing isn't viewed in the world as being unethical and immoral, there's nothing holistically wrong with me doing it. Um, and I, you know, it's good that I'm, I'm giving away tzedakah, but, but from, from a like personal fulfilling point of view, I was struggling a lot with it. And eventually I managed to get myself fired. So I solved the problem, um, you know, more organically. Um, and, uh, so I was forced out. My wife told me like, I was never going to quit my job, but I want, I like for years I wanted to leave. So I got myself fired and that was a, a good, a good solution. Um, and now, now that I'm investing, I, so now I, I invest in startups. I got involved in venture capital investing. I invest in early stage companies that are like kind of just beginning, getting off the ground, focused in areas that I have a lot of technical knowledge and experience so I can help them both with money and with uh, intellectual uh, uh, content. And um, I, I like to invest a lot in Israeli founders, you know, not, not only because I love Israel, but also because they have to be pretty, pretty smart um, and pretty capable at uh, the, 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 business, the, the areas that we invest in. But, um, you know, I invest in, in founders, and really the goal is to, I mean, the goal is to make money for my investors, if any of my investors are listening. 
Um, you know, that's obviously my primary goal, but I'm also looking to actually help people, um, help people not making the mistakes that, that I made in my career, both in terms of the content and the, and the, the material and the, the intellectual part of what they're doing, but also in the direction of what, you know, like the, the, the way that they're leading their lives and trying to guide them to be fulfilled by their work and to feel good about what they're doing and to do things that are both legal, but also moral and ethical and contribute to society. And hopefully I can have a positive impact on the community of entrepreneurs that I invest in. Okay, wonderful. So you would say, to sum it up, you would say that the, your work in, in the financial markets had no soul and venture capital has a soul. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so now let's. Can you give us some insight, please, into this in this new world that you're in the, of, of venture capital? By the way, how long have you been in uh, doing differential ventures? Uh, five, five years. Five years. Okay. So you're talking about making money for your investors. You're also helping the company, the startups themselves. So it's a combination of of investors will give you money to invest in these startups. Is that that's the idea? So, it, so when we go out, we we raise a fund, and so investors yeah. will invest in our strategy Got and it. in our team, and then we will decide to what companies to invest in. And we take the money that our investors give us and we, we put it up, but we don't, we don't add, we don't do it like investment by investment. We, we have a pool of money that we get from investors and then we deploy it into, uh, into different companies. Mm-hmm. Are you the sole decision maker? Or do you have to, as everything go by? No, God, God, no. Um, I'm a, <laughs> I have a partner who has more experience than I do in venture capital investing. Cause mm-hmm. I have, I have experience in, in financial and money management, but not in the venture space other than as a kind of an angel investor, kibitzer, um, I'm, I'm more the domain expert knowledge in, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, uh, computer science technology. And my partner is more experienced in business development and marketing and sales and, and in entrepreneurship and, and, uh, and startups. And so the two of us kind of, we each stay in our own lane. Um, you know, I, I, I respect his views. He respects mine and we, we make decisions together, but you know, I, we, um, I, I rely on him a lot for the business side of the investing process. Okay. So when a, when a company, a startup comes to, to you and they, they, they make their pitch, what is, what are you looking for as on, on, with your expertise on the, on the data and uh, data science? What are you looking for? And I guess the, 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 the other partner is the one looking for a, a sustainable business model, but what are you looking for in particular yeah, well, I mean, to determine? We're, yeah. look, we're looking for, um, first of all, we're trying to figure out is the, the key to success for the business because of their deep technology or is it because of the way that they're using some kind of more um, off the shelf mundane technology to solve a problem in a unique way. Mm. And if it's the former, if it's like they're, they're, they have some deep technology, then I have to go dive deep into the, to understand what they're doing. Maybe even like, like read some papers and learn more about what they're doing if I don't know so much about it, but like mm. understand from a technology perspective is what they're doing truly unique, truly ahead of the field and is that lead, whatever they have, sustainable? Meaning, are they likely to do, you know, to keep, keep, uh, you know, keep ahead of the field or are they just like kind of temporarily ahead and then some other people can, can jump in and, and, and pass them by? And we need to know that there's some protection, something protectable about their intellectual property that makes their lead sustainable, that they can build a business based on that. Um, and then we also want to make sure that they have a, um, uh, they want to make sure that they have a um, business model and a part of their team that understands how to make a product and sell it, not just have some, you know, we, we, we find what we call science experiments, like these guys that have like very, you know, great ideas, but they have no idea how to make it into a product. And that's not, not the basis of a business. 
So that's the that's the one side. On the other side, if we had if they have a kind of a more mundane, you know, you know, more than good enough technology, but really it's not that much better than what everyone else has. It's just that they found some unique way of of taking that technology and building a product around it and solving a problem that no one has solved as well. Then we then I, I want to vet. You know, my job is to make sure that what they have is real, that it really works. That it's, um, you know, that, that I can believe that the team that exists understands how it works and isn't just like taking something open source and, you know, off the shelf and just like running it, but don't really know how it works. Like make sure that they're a competent team to, to administer it. But then it's really relies on the rest of our team, my partner and the rest of our, of our analytical team to understand is the problem they're solving really an important problem? Will people pay for the solution? Um, is it really un- a unique solution? Is there some defensibility in how they're doing it? So that that in two years they'll still have a viable business model and product. So it's really like you know we, we have to triage what what's the source of the value, and then that determines how we analyze the results. Wow. So in five years, uh, starting starting from the beginning, have you seen? Do you have have you gathered enough experience to to know what works and what doesn't work? Meaning, have you have you seen? Yeah, have you seen? Like yeah, things I, that- yeah. I've, I've learned a lot. Look, we've made some mistakes, and I've learned. I you know I'm I'm a good good pattern matcher. We're good at build, building like kind of, you know, the models of uh, models of things, not that a, not not a quantitative model. I don't have data for that, but at least from a human perspective, seeing the experiences that I've had and, and where things have gone wrong with some of my investments and whether they are, you know, mistakes like, you know, hitting on 16 and busting. Well, that's the right move to make versus, you know, hitting on 20 and getting an ace. That's stupid. So like sometimes you, you can you can get a good outcome through a stupid process. Po- point you your can get a bad outcome through a good process. Blackjack, blackjack. Yeah, blackjack. Yeah, blackjack. Blackjack terminology. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so like I, I'm trying to like learn just so just because we've had we've had a couple of really good successes that were clearly mistakes that we shouldn't have made the investments and thank God they worked out. But but we've learned from those. But we've also mm-hmm. learned that there are some things that we need to do better. Th- you know, ways that we need to analyze. You know, uh, it, it, really the truth is for the most part we're investing in founders. We're investing in people and human beings, and we need to make sure that, especially in the, in the age of COVID, when we're doing a lot of our diligence, you know, over Zoom and not in person, we need to really make sure that the people that we're that we're investing in are actually who they say they are, and that we understand that we bother to ask enough questions, both of them and the references, to have a kind of complete perspective on who is running the business that we're investing in, and do they have the right makeup to be a success five, 10 years down the road, we really, we invest over a long time scale and we're really expecting to be in these, in the successful businesses for up to 10 years. And we want to know that the people we're investing in are worthy of those, of of that, of that faith and uh, that investment. Um, And that's the, that's the hardest part of the job. The technology for the most part, that's, you know, more mundane. Occasionally there's some really challenging technology, but usually I can figure out and my team can figure out, what what that what that's made of um it's really more about making sure the team has the right balance of enough technology help enough sales help enough kind of leadership help to uh to 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 lead to a good outcome so so much of so much of what you were saying is what determines a good investment as in venture capitalists is torah is torah um like Theology you know, is, is, is you're saying you have, you have to have the, the surah and the homer, the, the inspiration. And that's the pat, the passionate founders who have an idea. And then you have to have the ability to execute it, which is the, all of the grueling process of making sure that you have all those systems in place to make it successful. Right. So, and look, so, so interesting. You know, like I said, that, that you know, you, you, you don't, you don't succeed. You know, you, you, you put in the effort and God gets you, gets you across the finish line. 
And, you know, there's an element of that, whether you, you attribute it to God or to just to, you know, kind of luck in the marketplace. Um, you know, God doesn't necessarily want everyone to succeed. You know, God doesn't need everyone to succeed in their business ventures. But, you know, there's definitely elements of luck in the process where, again, you can make a good investment and do everything right and just end up on the wrong end of that coin flip and, and get a bad outcome. And that's okay. You know, you, you don't, you don't, you don't, uh, you know, berate yourself for that. It's when you've made a bad choice with information you could have had that, that, or that you did have that would have led you to a different outcome and you didn't pay attention to it or you didn't ask the right questions. Like that's the, the mistakes, but like, we're not expecting every company that we invest in to, 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 to sell for, you know, a hundred times our money. Um, we're, we're just, you know, hoping that we make the right, make good choices with the information we have and then do everything we can to help our company succeed. Uh, going back to, to the macro picture, if you could go back to your yourself as a younger person, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, so actually, I, I speak a lot to uh, to student groups, to college student groups on Shabbos and Shabbatones, and I this is what this is what I t- I would tell myself. This is what I tell them. What I wish I had done when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, was if I could have been more thoughtful about the choices I was making to ask myself the question, if I go down a certain path, if I take a job, if I study a field and go into a profession, if I am as successful as I can imagine being in that profession, just fast forward 10 years and put myself in the most successful version of that that career as I can imagine, will I be satisfied? Will, Will I feel fulfilled? Will I feel good about the life that I've led up to that point? And I stumbled into quantitative trading really because I didn't get the faculty job that I wanted and, and someone invited me to double my salary to go do this thing. And I was going to do it for a few years and then take pocket the money and go, go back into research. But when I went, when I went down that path, I didn't ask myself that question. Mm-hmm. And I think if I had, I wouldn't have done it. Um, and I, so that like, it, and, and like, look, I've done, I don't have regrets in my life in terms of like, I've got a wonderful life and I'm very proud of, of some things I've accomplished and I've got, uh, you know, a lot of, positive things I do in the world with the money I've made, but I spent a good, you know, good, good part of my intellectually vibrant adult professional life doing something that I don't feel is very valuable to society. Mm-hmm. And I'm making lemonade out of that, those lemons, but, but I, I do wish, I, I do look back and wish that someone had asked me that question so that I could have channeled my intellectual energies and my effort into something that also hopefully God willing could have made me a lot of money but also would have done something more positive for society. So I think that that's the advice is just that, look, you know, try just be in, intentional about how you, you spend your professional life and your education and try to think about what you're doing and whether it's something that you're going to be satisfied with and feel, feel fulfilled, by, fulfilled by down the road. And imagine that, that some, a younger person could make that determination by speaking to a mentor in that field. Sure. Probably. Sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about philanthropy. When you're, when you're confronted, or let's say the better word is approached, when you're approached by different, different nonprofits and charities, and there's so many causes and there's so, so many of them are worthy, what's the determining factor for you to invest, uh, invest to, to, yeah. To, so, so whatever. I've gone through a, a, a long evolution of this and ended up in, a, I think, a, a good place. But initially I was kind of just scattershot. You know, if the person who came to me asked for money was nice and friendly and I, I liked, I liked the person, I would give the money. If not, I wouldn't. It was very, I would say irresponsible. Um, and then, you know, then I started like, you know, I gave to my alma mater to Penn. 
I gave them like a, a, a large gift and um, um, look back on that and think maybe that was not the best use of my, of my Sadaka dollars. Um, but then I started getting involved in, as I started learning Torah, I started getting involved in Jewish philanthropy and I was still kind of scattershot. I would, um, you know, people would come to me with like their, you know, either good stories or sob stories about what they were doing. And I would just feel moved and I would give, you know, I write an arbitrary size check, usually what they asked for. Um, and not really with a lot of, you know, long-term thinking about how I was doing it. And eventually I realized it was overwhelming as, as once, once you like put yourself out there as a philanthropist, you get, you do get confronted. You get, you get inundated with requests and I couldn't manage it while I was working a full-time job and raising my kids. And so I ended up starting a foundation called the Kohelet Foundation that was going to be an umbrella for all of my Jewish philanthropy. And I got in, in, interested in entrepreneurial philanthropy, which is, you know, the idea that you are going to like treat, treat the, the um, organizations you, you donate to as like investments in businesses and get involved with them and start, you know, kind of like learning their mission and getting involved with their mission and, you know, kind of massaging it to do more of what you wanted them to do. And that didn't go very well. Um, and I, I came to realize that when you were donating to a, to an organization, to a charity, to a, you know, to a nonprofit, you're not buying shares in that nonprofit. You're, 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 you're giving, you're giving money away. That's why it's a, it's a, it's a gift. It's, it's a daca, but you're, you're giving it over without strings attached. You're giving it over to someone else to use in the, in, in the way they think it should be used, not the way you think it should be used. And so I, I pivoted to finding organizations whose missions I believed in enough to give them money. And then I would also meet with them. Maybe I would join a board. Maybe I wouldn't, but the goal was to not use my gift as leverage to contort their mission to mine. You know, at one point I was trying to make a conservative school, a conservative Jewish day school, hire an Orthodox rabbi. And that was to me the right thing to do, but in actuality, the wrong thing to do. Their mission was conservative Judaism and forcing them to hire an Orthodox rabbi to get my money was asking them or telling them to compromise their mission. And that was not, not, if they wanted to on their own, they should go and do that. But I, but to make my money contingent or to specifically pay for that rabbi, it was very tempting for organizations to take the money to add something that was like not so consistent with their mission. And I learned not to do that. And now I've, I've come to this point of view of, of um, just finding figuring out like what things I want to support in the world, finding the people who are doing that work the best and contributing to them, you know, in, 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 a, in an amount that I think is appropriate for the, the, the impact that I want to have on that organization. Mm-hmm. Then that's going to be on the global sense. Locally, I, I support local institutions. I give to local schools, even ones that I don't necessarily agree with their, their mission. Cause like it's helping the family. It's really, you know, you go into a school, you're actually helping the families who want to send their kids there to afford tuition. It's not really so much your, your promote. I mean, you, you are promoting the, the, the mission of the school, but it's really in helping families that need financial support more so than, than the specifics of what they're teaching. So I view like, I view, view communal, communal Sadaka as different from like the global picture, but I'm very much focused on Israel and promoting life in Israel and trying to like, you know, figure out what, what's impeding 
American Jews and European Jews from wanting to to move to Israel and trying to like see if I can have a positive impact on the life, the day to day life of people who move there, so that it could become a more attractive option for people. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, now I would I would ask like this, and I am going to ask, <laughs> and why is it? What what do you think is the imperative for a young Jewish person? our audience is is students of the podcast fellowship they're coming from all types of jewish backgrounds some just have one jewish parent um some have no jewish education some have like you like you did a conservative or reform education what's the imperative to to find out about judaism um if you look objectively at how complicated the world is today and if you know young people will do a little bit of research to see what the world was like 30 or 40 years ago the world is a wildly incomprehensibly com- complex place that there is so many temptations and lures and distractions and there's just so much going on. I don't know. I mean, I had trouble managing life and, and just direction before the internet and before all the streaming services and, you know, online this and that. But now it's so much more complicated. Having the humility to recognize that you need a guide, you need um, some structure and some, like an instruction manual. You need some, you know, you need something that tells you how to manage. And especially now, parents don't understand the world nearly as well as children do. Even like young children sometimes seem to understand the digital world better than the parents do. And so it's hard to like think of going to your parents. Your parents are your best mentors at some at some level, but it seems like there's a disconnect of like what what they can help you with. And the Torah, I mean, the Torah on one level is an amazing set of rules and guidelines and structure to help you live your life. So I think that that first and foremost is a a reason to look into it as opposed to looking into Zen Buddhism or you know, some other, some other philosophy that can help guide. There's a lot, a lot of brilliant people in the world that come up with philosophies, but I think that the Torah is the, the king of all those, those philosophies. But also there's a, a sense of commandedness, which I think it's a shame to live your life without. Um, and I genuinely believe that, um, we have a purpose here. And I think a lot of people, even people who aren't necessarily living religious, religious lives, had some level believe there's a purpose to being here and Torah and God explain that purpose and refine it and help you lead a fulfilling life of service to, to God, to other people, to your family, to your community, to yourself, that without Torah, you're just kind of wandering around blind, hoping you do something good, hoping you do something right. And, you know, I think Torah kind of like hones you in on ways in which every day you can do something really constructive. And like when I, there was a period of time where I wasn't working between um, when I, when I left, left Renaissance and I would wake up and I would, I would, um, I would, I would, I would do my, 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 pray, my, you know, chakras prayer service. I would put on film and pray, do, do all the prayers. And then I would do some learning. And like by about nine thirty, I was, done you know in some sense like at the rest of the day but I somehow felt fulfilled like I felt like I'd done something 
constructive. I, 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 I done my, what I was supposed to do. I, I'm commanded to do these things. I did my, I would daven Mincha, I would daven Marav, but, but like I would, you know, the, the sense that like there's something I'm here for. And even when I don't have a job, I have a job. And, you know, part of it's raising my children, part of it's being a good husband, part of it's being a member of a community, all those things. But like, you know, the things that, that the Torah tells me to do created a level of fulfillment that, that, I, that I think everyone needs to feel like they're doing something useful. And, and learning the details of why those things are useful has really enhanced my connectedness to, uh, you know, kind of a Torah-driven life, you know, Torah-observant life. But... I think, and, and there's lots of layers of that that gets de- always gets deeper and deeper. But just understanding that that you're not just here to like go to a party and, and make and make money and spend it and and live a material life. Like there's there's more to it. And hopefully, young people, regardless of their level of knowledge of Torah, can appreciate that there has to be that. We're not hedonists, and if you recognize this is not about hedonism, then Torah, you know, I think prescribes the truth of what that is, but at least gives you a window into seeing what a purposeful life looks like and whether you, whether you choose to eventually embrace it the way I have, I think just going into it and learning about it is a valuable exercise to see what a purposeful life looks like. That was my original experiment was to say, if I thought this was my purpose, what would it look like? And it ended up becoming very sticky and I, I came to believe in it. But I think that, that, you know, if, if you're, if you're believing that there's some purpose and you're not sure what it is, learning Torah and learning what that system is like is a great entree into that. Amazing. I can't think of a better ending. That's uh, a, a very eloquent explanation and uh, hopefully inspiring for many people. So David, I really appreciate that you spent this time. You took this time out of your, out of your busy day. My pleasure. Think, listening to pitches from companies and figuring out who to invest in and uh, to share this wisdom with the upcoming generation of young Jews and with anyone else who wants to listen and get insight into your world. So thank you very, very much. And thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate you giving me the chance to, to share it. Okay. Thank you. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.